Welcome to this podcast featuring Amir Sarfati, founder and president of Behold Israel. Behold Israel provides biblical teachings through its tours, speaking events, and social media. It's also a reliable and accurate source for developments in Israel and the region. Amir's live updates and teachings are based on God's written word. Connect with Behold Israel on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Download our free app, available on Android and Apple, under Behold Israel. Tonight, as we gather here, hundreds of thousands of Israelis are fasting and praying and lamenting and crying and tearing their garments and crying over the loss of the two temples that we had. The first one that was destroyed in 586 BC by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and the second which was destroyed by Titus Vespasian in 70 AD. There are many other different, I would say, disasters that are attached to that specific date, the ninth day of the month of Av, um, some of which are maybe uh, known to you, the expulsion of the Jews from England, the expulsion of the Jews from Spain, and many other events. And it's very interesting because um, in one of the commentaries that I read, some Jewish literature suggests that the Messiah was born on that very day as well. And it's very interesting because if a, if a Jewish literature suggests that Messiah was born, then that means he already came. Interesting. But we must remember that the Jewish people are lamenting over a man-made temple. They are crying in they are fasting and they are almost um, torturing themselves right now over something that is definitely not of God. If you really think about it, um, the Jews are saying that day will become a day of feast and happiness and joy and celebration when Messiah will come and the temple will be rebuilt. So there's a, an expectation for the, re, for the coming of the Messiah and the rebuilding of the temple. And, and I can only imagine, I can see in my mind a false Messiah coming, introducing a false temple, and then celebrating on that very day of the year, not knowing what is awaiting around the corner. So to me, the tragic part of the ninth of Av is not the destruction of the temple, but it's to see people lamenting over the destruction of the temple and to know that they're unable to see the, uh, um, the true Messiah who already came and is indeed everything we need to have. From the very beginning, from the book of Genesis, we know that God desired to dwell among his people. It is a, something that we see in Genesis 
right after the sin, if you remember, the Bible says in Genesis 3, verse 8, he says, And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, Adam and his wife, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So God wanted to dwell among his people. He wanted to, to have his presence among people. He knew they sinned. And yet he even then came and walked in the garden. And because sin brings shame and guilt, they were hiding. So their sin and their shame and their guilt caused them to hide and not God to want to fellowship with them. And it's interesting because we see the same thing in Genesis chapter 11 in verses 5 to 7. We can see, and the Lord came down to see the city with the Tower of Babel, if you remember, to see all the way the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language and people. And this is what they began to do. God says, look, isn't that interesting? The first time people gathered together from different places, in one place, the very first thing they do is trying to take my place and building a tower. But God came down again. He, this, you can see the desire of God to dwell among his people. We can go all the way to Leviticus itself, and we can see in chapter 26, verses 11 and 12, the same thing when the Lord said right there, um, um, he says in, again in 26, verses 11 and 12. Look at this. He says, I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. So you see, and, and moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be with you. See, God wants to walk among his people. God wants to dwell among his people. God wants to inhabit the praises of his people. And the problem is not with God. It's always with us. It's very interesting, but the Jewish people translated the Bible to Greek. It's called Targum, translation. And in the Greek translation of Genesis 3.8, look what the Greek said. Adam and Eve heard the word of God walking in the garden. Isn't that interesting? Memra in the Hebrew, Memra is the word. So they heard the word of God walking in the garden. Isn't that amazing? John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 and verse 15. Who is the Word of God? See, Jesus was there from the very beginning. You have to understand, when God created the world and there was light, it could not have been the light of the sun, the moon, or the stars, because they were created only on the fourth day. He actually said, let there be light. He did not create the light. The light was there. The light of God was there. He is the light of God. The Messiah himself was there before the foundations of the world. He is 
the light of God, and he is the word of God, and he walked in the garden. It's the same Messiah that was standing in the tabernacle before Moses, face to face, as a man talks to his friend. That's what the Bible says, that Moses saw God and talked with God face to face. Now, we know that the Father will not show his face. Who could sit, who, who do we know is calling us our friend? See? So, you see it's all over there. And, and, and when, when God took the people of Israel out of Egypt, he led them in a most amazing way. Think about it. A million and a half people are, are, are walking outside of this country. And, and I know all the scholars are saying, it is making no sense for them to get from A to B in such a short time. No. It makes sense for the C to open, but for them to get from A to B, it doesn't make sense. The Bible said that he took them on eagle's wings. On, you know what it means? It means that in our terms, they actually were almost flying. As they reached the side of the Red Sea where they were about to cross. Amazing. And <laughs> the sea opened. And you could see God everywhere. And all the people did is complaining and murmuring. And, and it was crazy. I, I'm thinking about Moses. I would, I would admit myself in a mental hospital <laughs> if I was him. Think about what he had to deal with. There was always complaints. And then God said, I still want to dwell with you. I want to be your God and you're my people. There's a love story here. Listen, our best time is going to be here in the desert. Once you go into the land that I'm going to give you, you're going to forget all about me. Now it's the time when you're completely 100% depending on me. You, this is the time I'm going to try and remember from our relationship. And then the tabernacle that you're about to see. That's a picture I took, by the way. Not that I lived in those days, but this is a, a replica of the tabernacle. But you call it the tabernacle. We don't. The name in Hebrew is the tent of meeting. That's the name. Ohel Moed, tent of meeting. God wants to meet us. This is our time. And God had great plans, even with that particular thing. But then came one of the most amazing, tragic, yet amazing chapters in the entire Bible. It's almost like my life's verse. In Exodus chapter 33. Now Moses, in verse 7, used to take the tent and pitched it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out of the tent of meeting which was outside the camp. Excuse me, would go out to the tent of meeting which was outside the camp. And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent, that all the people would arise and stand each at the entrance of his tent and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. 
And whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance. Can you imagine? Moses walks in. Everybody's walking with their eyes, seeing, looking at him. Once he's inside, the pillar of cloud is just standing. And, and the Bible says that when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. Isn't that amazing? That's Jesus. I don't know if you... Jesus in the Old Testament, jot that down also. This is one of those. The, the theophanies of Jesus. And watch this. Moses returned to the camp. His servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Then Moses said to the Lord, now watch this. Moses, at this point, is so sad. He's so sad because this whole golden calf just took place just a chapter and a half before. He spent 40 days on that mountain. He had to go back again to get another set of those. And he is so upset that his brother didn't stop this whole thing. He's so upset that the nation, after having seen all the great things that God did for them, they still worshipped that golden calf. By the way, golden calf in the Egyptian culture was called Epis. And Epis was the mediator between God and the gods and men. Isn't that interesting? They worshipped another mediator. When the one who mediates between us and God was right there. And it's interesting because Moses said to the Lord, See? I can only imagine the Hebrew. See? You say to me, bring up these people. Well, but yourself, you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you've said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. These are nice words, God, but I really need you. So now, therefore, I pray. That's my life's verse, by the way. <laughs> Exodus 33, verse 13. Now, therefore, I pray you. If I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. It's not mine. You chose them. You told me I was having good life with my wife and my father-in-law. Didn't need all of this drama. You told me these are your people. You called me to go and get them out of Egypt. Now, they're your problem. And then he said, "My." and then look at this. So, by the way, God loves this type of talking. Because when we come before the Lord and we remind the Lord, this is what you promised. That's what, you, when we stand on God's promises... You know what? He's not offended. If you come and start praying things that God never said, never did, is not from the Word of God, then it's just mumbling and bubbling and all of that. But when Moses said, you said, 
You promised me. And look at the response of God. And the Lord said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. I mean, I think God says, Moses, you need to sleep. (laughs) And then he said to him, and Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead me out of here. I mean, I don't want to go. If you are not leading me out of here, I'm staying. There is nothing greater to the ears of God than you saying to the Lord, if it's not you, I'm not moving. It's not like speaking any bad language here. It's the best language. I am not moving until you lead me. That's what you need to do. Every place in your life, when you get to a point where you don't know what to do, that's how you need to talk to God. If it's not you, I'm not moving. And Moses had the guts, the chutzpah. If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us out from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we... I and your people may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth. Moses says, the only thing that makes us different from the rest of the world is that you are with us. You chose us. You wanted to lead us. I'm not moving until you do so. Wow. Man. And the Lord said to Moses, Okay, I will also do this. I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, but you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by your name. God is reminding him, Don't doubt that. I, 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 you, you found favor in my sight. I know you by your name. I don't want you to doubt it even for one minute. And then Moses said, I pray you show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion of whom I will show compassion. But the Lord said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me. This is the father speaking. If he saw Jesus earlier, Here we can see, no one can see the Father's face. Then I will take my hand. So he says, Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Wow. God, that's what he wants to do with you. Dwell with you, lead you, and talk to you. I love uh, David. By the way, do you, know, do you have the GPS called Waze? Okay, so David says, lead me and show me your ways. Okay? 
Everywhere David went, he would ask God, God, am I supposed to do this? God says, no. Am I supposed to turn left? No, turn right. I mean, literally, GPS. <laughs> Personal, intimate relationship. It's not that he's asking, what color should I buy my Bentley? <laughs> it's the practical things of serving him and doing his job. Exodus 25.8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That's what God wants, to dwell amongst us. Interesting. And then Exodus 26, and then Exodus 33 that we just read. That's what God wants. And then the, <laughs> we're done with this, and the first temple was built. How different it is. <laughs> it's like walking from... I don't know, Motel 6 to the Trump Hotel. <laughs> Suddenly there's too much gold, and we'll watch this. Ladies and gentlemen, when Israel is already strong, and when God already made David the king as he wanted, David was a man after God's own heart, not Saul. And then David passed away, and then Solomon becomes the king. Solomon is building this 21-story high building. He's building a huge thing, probably one of the largest structures in the world of those days. That's why Queen of Sheba came to behold this wonder. And he adorned it with gold, and it was, adorned, it was all made of the, the cedar of Lebanon that was given to him, and also the limestone the Bible says two rows of limestone and one of the cedar of Lebanon. The cedar, the, 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 the wood would sustain some of the shaking of the earth, which, by the way, we had today another one. And that temple was standing there. And in 2 Samuel, in chapter 7, we see how the temple is being introduced but it wasn't until first David if you remember took the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem the tent of meeting was never in Jerusalem not even a single day the tent of meeting the tabernacle stayed in Shiloh and then of course remember the Ark fell in the hands of the Philistines and remember that the Philistines returned it back to Beit Shemesh, and from there they sent it all the way to Obedidom in Kiriatiarim. And David tried the first time to bring it to Jerusalem, failed. The second time he managed to dance before the ark, and he eventually brought it to Jerusalem. There was still no temple standing there. He brought the ark, and he had a covenant with the Lord. And the Lord said, you cannot build a house for me, but your son can. And that is exactly in 1 Kings chapter 6 we hear about, about King Solomon and the construction of the temple is indeed in chapter 6. Amazing, amazing structure. And it is the only struck, a temple in the world of those days that did not contain inside even a single statue. Nothing. In fact, people used to come to the land to behold three miracles, amazing things. A sea where everybody floats. A day in which people do nothing. 
and a temple that contains no statue. It's unheard of in those days. But the problem is, we can sometimes build beautiful buildings and we can adorn them with gold and silver. But after all, it's construction. After all, it's a structure. After all, it's a building. The house of God is the people. And many times, we become accustomed to the worship of God to the point that it becomes just a ritual. The personal relationship is gone through the window. We don't even know God because we just show up and do what we need to do. Because you have to. And then people started worshiping God and they started doing the things and slowly, slowly, politically correctness entered and the evil influence of other gods and other deities crawled into the temple. It was a deception. The deception of a pagan worship that invaded into the house of God in Jerusalem. In Ezekiel, we hear ever since chapter 8 and then 9 and then 10, we see that the people worshipped other gods. The women worshipped Tammuz, completely Babylonian deity that goes and dies and then rises again every year. And, and they worship the sun, the creation, rather than the creator. Horrible. And where? It's one thing if they did it in their house. At the temple in Jerusalem. Under the auspices of the high priests and the priests and the Levites. Who took part in this whole thing. And for a second did not even think that they're, pag they're doing pagan worship. And I, I can tell you, I've seen enough churches when little by little, godly, excuse me, earthly and, 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 and uh, earthly things and, and worldly things crawl into. And before you know it, your church service is an entertainment show. And no one even knows God. And Bibles are not even used. And you're sitting in huge stadiums. And the service is a big a show and a big production, and that's it. That's it. The temple was in Jerusalem standing, but God was not in the temple. The Bible says that the Spirit of God started moving out of the Holy of Holies, to the holies, to the outer court, to the gates, and left it to the mountain which stands on the east, the Mount of Olives. Think about it. God was not in the house of God. And yet they came every day to worship and every day to bring offering. They did not even know he's not there because they never knew him. How sad when you come to the house of God and he's not even there and you don't even know that. It's a picture of a lot of churches, even in Australia. And they could be big. And the worship sometimes can be amazing. Lots of smoke and pyrotechnics and a lot of great things. America has many of those also. By the way, God forbade us from worshipping the sun or other pagan idols. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, in verse, um, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, 
verse 19, because God knew exactly what the people are capable of doing. So in verse 19 of chapter 4, the Lord says, And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to you, all the peoples under you, under uh, uh, the whole heaven. God knew. And these people in the temple, they know the word of God. They should have known better. And they started worshiping that exactly which God says not to. Jeremiah, in chapter, in chapter um, 10, in the first, in the first few, few verses, Jeremiah himself said to the people of Israel the following thing about the worship of other deities. He said, Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the nations and do not terif uh, be terrified by the signs of the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them. For the customs of the people are delusion because it is wood cut from the forest. Uh, the, the works of the hands of craftsmen with a cutting tool. They decorate it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a, in a cucumber field are they. And they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them for they cannot do harm nor can they do any good also. Don't worship those things. Isn't that interesting that the son in Malachi chapter 4 verse 2, Jesus is the son with righteousness in his wings. Yes, the Bible says, you're looking at me as if I'm giving you some Terrible, terrible, terrible um, blasphemy here. So go to Malachi. You guys call it Malachi, but it's more Malachi. <laughs> and you go to chapter 4, and you see in verse 2, the last chapter, look what it says about the Messiah. Are you ready for that? Look what it says. It says in verse 2, it says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaffed, and the day is coming and will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that I will leave them. But, okay, but for, but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. That's the Messiah, the Son of Righteousness. Isn't that interesting with healing its wings? And isn't that interesting that they worship Tammuz, a deity that died and resurrected? Yet Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 talks about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Satan is always doing a counterfeit. Always. You really need to worship the Son of Righteousness, but you worship the Son. You really need to worship the one who came and lived and died and resurrected, but you worship the wrong one. Amazing. I've been crucified with Christ. It is not longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the life we need to have. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of the life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Interesting how the word, the, the life, pride of life, ala zoneia, an empty presumption with trust in the stability of earthly things. God says, that's not what you need to put your trust in. In me. And then, of course, we see the departure of God's glory from the temple in solemnly narrated by the prophet Ezekiel who was among the captives by the river of Kebar. Ezekiel in 1.1 says that, Step by step, the glory of God departs slowly from his house, seen in vision by the prophets, manifesting the reluctance of God to leave the midst of his people where he had dwelt. The glory left the holiest of all, departed to the threshold of the house in chapter 9. And then he departed from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house in chapter 10. And the last sight of the divine glory at the time of the departure was the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood upon the mountain which is set on the east side of the city. Ezekiel eleven twenty three. Unbelievable. And when God is not with you, and you think he is with you, then calamity and destruction comes, and Jerusalem is completely being sacked and destroyed, and the temple destroyed in 586 BC as predicted and as documented in 2 Chronicles 36, the very end of the Hebrew Bible. See, you guys end up your Old Testament with Malachi. We don't. Sorry. The real order is that Second Chronicles is the last book. Yeah, well, we can teach you a few things. Anyway, chapter 36, verses 15 to 19 speaks of the destruction of that temple. And for 70 years they were away. Daniel expects the end of the 70 years. <laughs> Have no clue that God is going to reveal to him something way greater than that. But then they return back, and, and who is the one who asked the king? to go back and rebuild the city and the temple. Nehemiah. And he comes and the second temple is being built. Ezra chapter 6 verses 13 to 15 speaking of the building of that second temple. Number 2 is behind. And ladies and gentlemen, Ezra and Nehemiah were the first to construct something. Then in the 2nd century BC came the Hasmoneans, the Maccabees. They made it nicer, but it wasn't until the Herod the Great in the first century BC that turned that amazing place into, they say that if 10 measures of beauty were given to the world, nine were taken by Jerusalem of those days. It was, it was quite amazing. This is the Herodian temple. It wasn't just a temple. Herod understood one thing. There is no business like God's business. I can make so much money from these people. All I need to do is make sure that the temple is nice, but I will enlarge everything to the north, to the east, to the west, and to the south, so there will be enough place not only for the worship, but also for shopping. Shopping. This whole building that you see, the long red roof, this is a huge shopping mall. It's called the Royal Portico. Colonnade. 
Amazing. Money changers were there. You could just buy whatever you want. People would come to the temple. They would be like that. Then they give the sacrificial animal, fulfill their duty and run shopping. And Herod made so much money. And God was not there. He only came back to visit when the little baby came and he was dedicated. This is it, Simeon said. This baby, he is the light of revelation to the world and the glory of his people, Israel, he said. Luke chapter 2, 22 to 52, 30 verses that are speaking of how God came to visit in a different way, in the form of a baby. Amazing. John 4, 20 to 24, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, and you Jews, and the Samaritan woman is saying to Jesus, of course, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, Mount Gerizim, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when we'll neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, but know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, Yes, Messiah has to come from amongst Israel. He, salvation is of the Jews. It is prescribed. However, do not put your trust in the temple. Do not put your trust here or there. Not even in the one in Jerusalem. God is spirit. He actually says God is not there. That's a powerful declaration from God in the flesh. Because he's not talking about the future. Look, he says... The day, the hour is coming, and now it is. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Think about the Jewish people hearing such a thing when they hear there is a temple. What a blasphemy it is. Because they still go to a house, and God is not in the house. Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to him, saying, uh, uh, showing the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do, do you not see all these things? Surely I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus is looking at the structures, and for him, these are just a pile of stones that will be as, as much as they were built by men, will be destroyed by men. And if you go to Israel, this is the Herodian street. This street is from the time of Herod. And that pile of stones is the very stones of the Temple Mount that were thrown down by the Roman soldiers as they destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. Just as Jesus said. I don't believe that he's saying the truth. Well, you don't have to. You have to go there and see for yourself. Ooh, that, that's interesting. That's it. Not even one stone is left from the temple. We found stones from many other things. Not one. It's very amazing. 
And because not even one stone remained, so many false people are now saying, oh, the temple is not even there. Earth is flat. <laughs> Suddenly everything is okay. NASA faked all the pictures. Earth is flat? So if I leave here and I fly, how come I get back to the same place if it's flat? The temple was not there, so why all the, why all the stones were thrown there? Not elsewhere. This is the Temple Mount today. By the way, the Temple Mount, not the Timali, whatever it is. That's what it is today. Hmm. See the Dome of the Rock? Tell you a story. Keep that way in a few seconds. It was in the 1980s that the Muslims on the Temple Mount, they are the full control over the Temple Mount right now. The Dome of the Rock is the third holiest site in the world for Islam. Therefore, Israel may control Jerusalem, but we leave the Temple Mount grounds for them to control as far as the religious authority. And the Muslims um, came to the municipality and said, guys, there is a, a hose that bursted. We need uh, you know, the, the municipality to come and fix it. We sent plumbers with plumbing equipment. And when we came with the right equipment, plumbing equipment, we actually found out, as the water were cleaning up and clear up so much, we discovered an ancient, can we go further, we found a corner. See this? And when we tested the age, it was Solomonic. So we realize when you find a corner, and when we know that the Temple Mount platform was square, you know exactly. And when you know the measures, the Jewish Talmud tells us 250 yards, 250, we know exactly. So all you need to do is go this way, this way, this way, and this way. You cross it, and you know exactly where the temple was standing. Where? Where the Dome of the Rock is. You see, one thing you may not know, all you flat earthers in City of David Templars. When the Jews lamented on the 9th of Av, but 1,500 years ago, there was no wailing wall at the time. They actually came to the site where the temple was standing. And they were there on the rock where once the Holy of Holies was standing, and they lamented and cried. And the Muslims show up in 638, what are you doing here? Well, this is where our temple was standing. Oh, mm, interesting. All right. Their temple was standing there. All right. Opposite the dome on that side stood the church of the Holy Sepulchre. The Muslim says, we have to build something to counterbalance those Christians over there. And they decided right where the Jews lamented over the dome, over the, the destruction of the temple, to build the dome. And it's called the Dome of the Rock because it's a dome above, over a rock. 
And the rock is the bedrock. And we found inside that bedrock an interesting cutting of the bedrock that matches the sizes of the Ark of the Covenant. And when the Bible says that the Ark rested, the Ark must have rested, situated inside. So, isn't that interesting? So you see, Solomon's Temple Mount was the red. Herod's Temple Mount was the green. You see? Herod, I told you, made it long, bigger, wider, whatever. And <laughs> where are the Jews worshipping today? Right there. That's the wailing wall. See that little red part? Is that part of the temple? No. Is it even part of something from Solomon's time? No. The Jews today cry and stick notes and sanctify a piece of retaining wall from the time of Herod. And when Herod built it, this is it. When Herod built it, the retaining wall, he had no clue that somebody is one, one day is going to kiss that stone and shove so many things in it. Today there's a fax service. You can fax a prayer and they'll run and put it for you. And there's a camera that you can make sure they do that. And a PayPal that you can pay for it. Don't forget. Amazing. So that's where we stand today. That's all we have left. The Dome of the Rock is standing. The Wailing Wall is there. And the Jews are expecting something else. In Jerusalem, there's a whole institute ready for the construction of the Third Temple. They already train priests. They already train them how to slaughter animals. They already build replica of so many things because they want the Third Temple. They just don't understand that the third temple, according to Daniel 9 and 2 Thessalonians 2, will be a temple that, yes, they are going to build, but guess who is going to walk inside and declare himself as God? Exactly. How is it going to happen? First of all, is there a place for a temple? A third one? <laughs> Look at this. North of the Dome of the Rock, because that is north, there's a vacant platform. And it is aligning perfectly with the Golden Gate, the Eastern Gate. And there is a piece of some of the bedrock where some Israeli Jewish rabbi claim that was the Holy of Holies. He believes that that's where the second temple was there to begin with. And he already started convincing people that there is actually vacant area. Now, I believe he's wrong, but I believe he's right. In other words, he's wrong. The fact that is that he's wrong. But if you want a third temple without destroying this one, the, the, the dome, then he offers an option. Maybe that's why the Bible says that the abomination will be on the outer side of the court. Maybe. This is... In my eyes, I'm thinking the Antichrist is sort of a world leader that will, let's hold hands and sing Kumbaya. You guys worship here, they worship there, everything is fine. 
Interesting. People are telling me, Amir, isn't the Antichrist going to confirm a covenant? And I always tell them, I wish I could teach you Hebrew. Because the word is not to confirm any covenant. The word is to increase. Is to take something like a peace deal and to make it spectacular. <laughs> Think about it. The Antichrist is not a man of war. He's a man of peace. Daniel talks about a man of peace. He's not coming and destroying Israel. He comes and lures them with peace. With, okay, you can build a temple. I want to tell you something, folks. Everybody's waiting for the deal of the century. President Trump is about to introduce a peace deal. And I know a lot of pastors that are like, I am concerned that he is going to give them Jerusalem. Why are you so concerned when this is the only president in the history of America that ever acknowledged Jerusalem is Israel's capital? Trump's acknowledgement of Jerusalem as capital was necessary for Bible prophecy. Why? Because the Antichrist is not going to tell them this is your capital. It's already a done deal. He will increase. He will make the already known spectacular. So what is to increase? To increase is, Jerusalem is yours, but I'm going to let you build what? The temple. That's the difference between the peace that the Antichrist is going to give and any peace deal that is going to be introduced today. Now, eh, Jerusalem only. Then, the temple. It's all about the temple. Hmm. The ultimate peace that Trump is about to, to offer is definitely not going to be the ultimate peace. It's just one step in preparation for the Antichrist to give the real trophy. Jerusalem is going to be on the table. And you need to understand that. Because right now, everybody's talking about it. Believe it or not, the third temple is going to stand there not for too long. What a waste! I'm thinking they build it and they put millions of dollars and within probably three and a half years, it's gone. So sad, huh? Why? Because when Jesus comes back and his feet will stand on Mount of Olives, as Zechariah says in chapter 14, Mount of Olives will split. And allow me to tell you that when Mount of Olives splits, everything splits. And let me tell you, that underneath the Temple Mount of today, the eastern gate of today is just Muslim. Underneath is the eastern gate from the time of Jesus. We found it. The Muslims put concrete, we dug it. They put concrete again, and they suppressed the truth. And the Bible says, truth shall spring out of the earth. Not interesting. When the earthquake will happen, Psalm 24 will come to pass. Lift up your heads or your gates and be lifted up and the King of glory is going to walk through it. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible says in Lamentation, the book they all read every day, Lamentation chapter 2, the Bible says, Jerusalem, her gates have sunk under the rubble. When he was destroyed, 
everything sunk under the rubble. Now the gates will lift, be lifted up. <laughs> and another temple is going to be built. Wait a minute, I lost count. How many? So there was the tabernacle. Then the first physical temple by Solomon. The second one had three phases. Ezra and Nehemiah, the Hasmoneans, and the Herodian. Then that was destroyed in 70 AD. The Antichrist will allow the Jews to build a third one. Halfway through, he walks into it and says, This is my place. I am God. Worship me. The Jews says, No, you're not. He will say, Yes, I am. They say, No, you're not. He said, Yes, I am. And they'll flee and he will be after them. And then Jesus comes back. All Israel will be saved. A millennial kingdom will start. And believe it or not, the Bible says in Ezekiel 40 and in Isaiah 24 that there will be another temple, a fourth one, much bigger. Once again, animals sacrificed, but no longer they are to give you any redemption or any forgiveness of sins. They're just a symbolic act to show what Jesus did already for you. It's very interesting. The millennial kingdom, there will be a fourth temple. So let's, let's capsulate everything. Okay, We're almost at the end. Watch this. It started with a tent of meeting. And the first temple, the second temple. We're going down because every, every time it gets worse and worse. Second temple. Then the third one is that's when I believe we'll be raptured before we're going to see it and come back with Jesus when we destroy it. Hallelujah. Yeah. Mm. So, uh, okay, thank you. Then comes the fourth temple where we will be with Jesus reigning in Jerusalem. And then after a thousand years, you see when God came in the garden, there was no temple. It was just God. There was no need for a temple. And when God is going to make all things new, new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth, guess what? Are we going to have a temple? Revelation 21, 22 says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Amen? Amen. That's what we're looking forward to. So I'm asking you this evening, because that's it. I'm asking you, God wants to dwell in you. But God is a gentleman. He won't come in unless you allow him to. I will knock on your, the doors of your heart. If you open, that was a good one. Huh? If you open, you will come in and dine. Hmm. Tonight, if you're sitting here, you just heard, the temple is something that we're going to hear about a lot in the next few years. And we ourselves, I believe, if you're a believer, you're not going to see the third temple standing. But we're definitely going to see its destruction. But you're not, if you're not a believer, the day is going to come when you will be so deceived. God wants to tabernacle amongst us. And he wants to be your God. Yeah, but I'm a sinner. True. 
You are a sinner. But that's why he provided solution. That's why Jesus died for your sins. What a waste to have him dead for your sins and you don't even believe in it. You see, the fact that Jesus died 2,000 years ago is a fact. Everyone says, even the historians, even Josephus Flavius said. But the only people that will be having eternal life are those who believe in him. What is to believe in him? Is to believe, A, that you're a sinner, B, that you must repent, C, that there is nothing in the world that you can do that will cause God to love you more than he already did when he sent his only begotten son, and to embrace and accept Jesus as not the Messiah only, but your personal Lord and Savior and the captain of your ship. And let him, from now on, lead you. That's what he meant when he told the Samaritan woman, those who worship God, worship him in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. And he wants to dwell in you. Jesus wants to enter. I mean, the Holy Spirit can only be inside of you if you invite the Holy Spirit in you. By accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So tonight, as our eyes are going to be closed and our heads bow down, as we conclude this with a prayer. Tonight, we heard about hundreds of thousands of people that in the dark, they're right now lamenting and crying over the destruction of a man-made building. When we know that God is a spirit, He wants you tonight. And as our eyes are closed and our heads are all bowed down, if you're here tonight and you haven't experienced a truly birth from above, if you haven't experienced a true life led by the Holy Spirit, tonight, as we are all bowing down our heads and closing our eyes. If it's you and you want us to acknowledge and pray for you, and no one is going to see you, lift up your hand so I can see and acknowledge. I see your hand. Anyone else? I see your hand. I see your hand. The Father, tonight, we're not here to just talk about history. We're not here to talk about just the future or the past. We're not even here to discuss rituals or some, some traditions. We're here because we want to know you. And just as Moses said, unless you you lead us. We do not want to move. Tonight, we pray that the people who acknowledge their need for Jesus as their personal Savior, visit them tonight in a special way. Show them your love, compassion. Fill them with the Holy Spirit. May they will 
experience such a birth from above that they go back home filled with the joy and this, the joy of their salvation. And they will know that they are born again. They will know that they are spirit-filled. And they will want to be baptized and they will want to live for you and serve you for the rest of their days as they are not that many. We thank you that all the things around us are showing that we're about to be taken out of here. Everything in the Middle East, everything around the world is exactly according to what Jesus said to the disciples on Mount of Olives. And he says, when you see these things begin to happen, lift up your heads and look up for your redemption is drawing near, the redemption of the body from this evil world. So, Father, we thank you for your promises not to leave us as orphans, but to come and take us. So where you are, we will also be. We thank you that we will see the face of Jesus in the clouds and not on earth. That we will see the back of Jesus when we ride behind him on his way back to earth. We pray that more and more will come to the saving knowledge of him as Messiah and Lord and Savior. And we ask this in the matchless name of the Holy One of Israel, King of kings, Lord of lords, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb of God, the Prince of Peace, Emmanuel, in the name of our salvation, your salvation, Yeshua, Jesus, we pray. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast featuring Amir Sarfati, founder and president of Behold Israel. Connect with Behold Israel on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Download our free app available on Android and Apple under Behold Israel. Amir's teachings can be found in multiple languages. You can also visit our website, beholdisrael.org.